I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about the suburbs. How did they come to dominate American politics? How have they changed? And what can we learn from the persistent myths about them? This is The Politics of Everything. The suburban housewife will be voting for me, Donald Trump tweeted in August. They want safety and are thrilled that I ended the long-running program where low-income housing would invade their neighborhood. A month earlier, again explicitly addressing suburban housewives of America, Trump warned that Biden will destroy your neighborhood and your American dream. It is not unusual for an American election to revolve around competing visions of and for the suburbs. Trump has, as usual, completely uncoded, formerly coded conservative messaging about who the suburbs are for and what their residents want. Meanwhile, Democrats are increasingly reliant on suburban voters for their own electoral plans. But their appeals might rest on similarly out-of-date visions of life outside the urban core. Nearly half of all American voters live in a suburb. Do politicians really know who they are or what they want? In this segment, we're leaving the city for more space, more fresh air, and a simple commute of Metro North. When you move to the suburbs and you become one of these sought-after suburban voters, you're being pitched a way of life with a whole set of values. Of course, there's no official welcome packet to explain them all. So TNR Deputy Editor Katie McDonough went looking for the promise of the suburbs, the things we're told the suburbs represent, in real estate listings. Katie, why don't you tell us about the first place that you found? Okay, so I have to admit that I didn't find this one on my own. This went semi-viral for reasons that I think will become quite clear later. It's a very beautiful-looking two-story brick house, has these cute little arched windows, has a fenced-in leafy front yard, a little side porch. It's two bedrooms, one and a half baths. I feel like I couldn't exactly describe the aesthetic. It's just kind of perfectly normal suburban house. It has that beige tiling in the kitchen that I feel like is either very inexpensive or maybe just uniformly people decided this was the best way for a kitchen in the suburbs to look, but it has all of that. So it all feels fairly standard. It sounds like from the way you're describing it, there's going to be some horrible catch. <laughs> I will say, I'm looking at the photo now, and another feature of the kitchen has is what I would describe as a mysterious door. Okay. There is, Alex. <laughs> there is a mysterious door. And so I'm going to just read right from the listing. The best part, <laughs> connected to the home, <laughs> is a 2,500 square foot legitimate jail with nine cells, booking room, and half bath. Possibilities are amazing with this property. <laughs> is it ready to go? Like, is the idea that the person that moves in here would start to run a jail? Or do you, do you have to be a sheriff to move in? Like, what's the story? How does, it, how does a home even have a jail? It has very Hannibal Lecter vibes. Mm -hmm. But the listing references the fact that it was actually a sheriff's home. But the way that it's framed is really funny because it's like, oh, this incredible historic detail. But it was a working jail until 2004. 
which makes it (laughs) historic in the same sense that like Shrek 2 is historic. Um, (laughs) Okay, so you're bringing this to us as your first listing. I assume it is some kind of metaphor. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, especially right now with the president in particular, emphasizing this real message that like the strength and promise of the suburbs is the law and order that they afford. It's presumably white, presumably wealthy in his imagination residents. And that like this then, even though it's a perfectly average town, right? It's not particularly wealthy. It's not exceptional in any of those ways. This house sort of just functions as I think almost the liberal version of what a suburb is, which is you don't have to look at the unpleasant part of, you know, incarceration, but also, you know, the kind of Trumpian vision of it too, which is that like, hey, don't worry, you don't have to travel far. You can have your own jail. (laughs) You need to (laughs) citizens arrest someone. Wow. So what's the next listing? So it's actually a series of listings that there are all of these real estate websites that collect the like cream of the crop real estate listings and kind of present them almost as a package. And so this one, um, a website pulled together as the homeschool friendly listings in upstate New York. And so right now in New York, as we're recording the ultimate fate of public school reopenings remains to be seen. It's supposed to be happening, but there's been new cases of COVID and sort of a real sense of uncertainty about whether or not it's something that can safely happen. And so I think that these listings are really emphasizing the idea that like you can afford your child something that maybe other parents can't if you move into one of these houses. And so This is described as a homeschool-friendly colonial house for the very fair price of (laughs) $425,000. There's shaker-style wood trim, columns, Douglas fir wood floors. It seems really nicely lit. But then I think the real selling point as highlighted in this listing is that there is this back separate house that you can use as your own one room classroom for your child or maybe your child's pod school. Well, it's kind of the idea of the one room schoolhouse, which was this place where the community would gather, but privatized. So it's like your own one room schoolhouse (laughs) just for you, maybe a couple of friends. So obviously that's a relatively recent phenomenon of people trying to set up pod schools, but do you think it's sort of continuous with the attitude towards schooling in the suburbs more generally? Well, that was the reason people said for moving to the suburbs for so many years, right? Was the schools. Exactly. I mean, this is the sort of pandemic era rebrand of that. Okay. And shall we have one more listing? So now we're hopping on a plane and landing in Seattle, which is in the midst of its own really terrible housing crisis. And this house, I think I can best describe it as the house that I grew up understanding through movies and things like that. This house is where people go for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) It just looks like the place that the, you know, holiday romantic comedy is based in. It is $3 million (laughs) to Mm -hmm. live Mm -hmm. there. So what hidden aspect of the suburban lifestyle does this represent? I mean, it's funny because it's like the most hidden and also the most explicit, um, which is it's a single family zoned house in a neighborhood in a city that is 81% of residential land is zoned for single family use. And this is in a city, right? But most of the land is zoned for houses like this. 
And so this is the most iconic way that people describe a suburb, which is sort of medium density, right? Like you can see a neighbor's house. It's not a rural place, but it's all single family homes. And so this then becomes the most visible character of what a suburb comes to mean for people. But it's also the most sort of pernicious way in which the suburb in the meaning of like a concentration of white wealthy residents protecting and kind of congregating to, you know, hoard resources among themselves. This is what zoning does in these neighborhoods. In 1917, the Supreme Court says you can't do explicit racial zoning. And all of the cities and land developers said, okay, that's fine. We won't do racial zoning anymore. We'll do single family zoning and all of these other means through which we can still have these really exclusionary policies that lock out black families, poor families, anyone basically except for white wealthy families. And we will call it something different. So I guess that the takeaway here is that the listings are showing us gorgeous architectural features and a range of prices, but also some hidden features like the carceral state, (laughs) segregation, and segregated schooling. Yeah, basically. I mean, I think it's funny, though, too, because the suburbs are those things, but a lot of cities are those things, too. I almost wonder if it's more useful to not think about suburb versus urban versus rural, but like where are there high concentrations of wealthy white people who get to dictate policy. Well, thank you, Katie. And I can't wait to move in. (laughs) Well, you didn't choose which one. (laughs) Which one are we going to move into? (laughs) Oh, man. I I have to go with the the viral jail. (laughs) Dungeon house. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Only because I have an extremely rambunctious toddler. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about how the suburbs are sold, but is there any truth in the sales pitch? We asked two guests how modern suburban reality differs from the myth. My name is Willow Lung Amam. I'm an associate professor in the Urban Studies and Planning Program at the University of Maryland, and also director of community development at the National Center for Smart Growth Research and Education at the university. I think Many Americans tend to think of the suburbs and leave it to beaver stereotypes, Um, but the suburbs of America don't really look like that much anymore. Since about 2008, the majority of African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, and all immigrant groups have lived in the suburbs, in addition to white America. Uh, What made the suburbs look so much more diverse now than they did in the past? Well, I think one of the things you might ask is why the suburbs look the way they did previous to now Mm -hmm. and previous decades, um, particularly in the post-war era when we had this massive um, migration out from urban areas into suburban areas, largely of white people and largely of working class residents that were moving out of central cities and were being given the opportunity to do so largely through federally sponsored and backed loans um, in order to purchase homes in suburbs. And this really made the post-war middle class. Um, And this opportunity was restricted for non-white residents. What allowed that to change more recently? Well, you had racial covenants that were in place previous to 1948 
and were ruled unenforceable after that point. Um, You've had civil rights protests over employment and public accommodations that have helped to open up new opportunities in suburbs. You have Fair Housing Act of 1968 that helped to reverse redlining practices. And you've had um, massive immigration into the U.S. You've had the browning of America. And many of those immigrants have settled directly into the suburbs in a post-1965 period. Unlike those who might have come in previous decades and settled into ethnic enclaves in the center city because they weren't allowed to purchase homes in suburbs. So the landscape has changed, but the narrative around it hasn't necessarily. Yeah, even scholars for a long time sort of cast the suburbs as largely white and middle class and ignored many of the communities that had lived in suburbs for a very long time, Asian-American communities, African-American communities, and Latinx communities that have, in many ways, helped to build suburbs like they've helped to build the rest of America. One term I was really curious about is this term ethnoburbs. I think one of the reasons why the term is helpful is just because it helps us to understand that the suburbs are more diverse than many people see them. But I think the problematic aspects of it are that as communities of color, as immigrant communities move to the suburbs, all of a sudden they're not suburbs anymore. So we've Mm -hmm. seen this for African-Americans. You see when they migrate to the suburbs, all of a sudden those suburbs are sort of cast as the inner city, right? Mm -hmm. And when you see immigrant communities move to the suburb, all of a sudden it's an ethnic enclave in the suburb, And so you don't have the kind of normalization of their experiences and their communities as you do of the wealthy, white, and middle-class suburbs. So it's interesting with Trump because the threat he invokes is that Joe Biden will end the suburbs. He'll Mm -hmm. destroy the suburban way of life. Mm -hmm. If we take that to be a sort of strictly racially coded thing— I mean, it sounds like that's already done. (laughs) Like the suburbs have already diversified. Yeah. Is Donald Trump just playing on an existing backlash to those changes? I think he is picking up on a backlash to those changes. Um, It's important to note, though, that as communities of color have moved to the suburbs, they've also become more segregated, more fragmented. And so you have this real diversity in suburban types. So not all the white middle-class suburbs are seeing more diversity necessarily. But I think more so what Trump is trying to pull on is an ideal of suburbs where suburbs equaled upward mobility, suburbs equaled opportunity, right? And what you've seen across America over the last several decades is increasing inequality, a lack of mobility for both communities of color and for the white middle class, right? A hollowing out of the middle class. And to some extent, I think he's kind of trying to rescue that narrative Mm -hmm. for folks and trying to instill a hope that the suburbs can still be that by appealing to a former version of the suburbs that really only exists in our imagination. Willow, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. I'm Brian Goldstone. I'm a journalist and cultural anthropologist, and I'm also a national fellow with New America. Poverty in the suburbs nationwide has risen dramatically over the last couple of decades uh, to the point that today 
there are roughly 3 million more people who are poor in the suburbs than in urban centers. Uh, In Atlanta, where my reporting is based, poverty in the suburbs rose by 159% over the last 15 years. And that is a trend that has really been seen throughout the country. Is that entirely a recent development? It, It is, in large part. That trend really took off, I think, after the 2008 foreclosure crisis. Where housing in particular is concerned, you saw the conversion en masse of millions of suburban homes into rental properties that were bought up by, in many cases, Wall Street corporations, landlords, and those were made into rental housing for low-income people. So as housing became less and less affordable in, in cities, people were pushed out of those cities into these suburban areas. It's fascinating because in our sort of easy historical narrative about the suburbs in America, we imagine cities full of renters and then suburbs being subsidized and built so that they could afford homeownership and leaving. I think that a lot of Americans and especially a lot of politicians might not be fully aware of the extent to which uh, the suburbs are now full of renters and and especially struggling renters now, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, one of the key characteristics of these renters who upon moving into these areas, uh, continue to struggle, is the phenomenon of what's often called hidden homelessness or hidden housing insecurity. Unlike these urban centers, uh, the social services available in these suburban locales are incredibly scarce, um, especially when compared to what meager resources are offered in cities. And so people are more or less left to fund for themselves and, and become stranded in these areas in extended stay motels, doubling up with with friends or relatives, uh, but they do largely remain out of sight and hence invisible. And, you know, it's much easier in a dense city like New York for someone to find a way to get to work without a car, for example. But that's basically much more difficult in the suburbs too, right? Yeah, in a city like Atlanta and in other sprawling metropolitan areas, having a vehicle becomes absolutely essential. So you cut back in other areas, um, even food, in order to afford a car and afford the gas that gets you from the suburban periphery into the urban center where you likely work. And tragically, I've seen countless people who go from buying a car because they have to have one in order to survive in the suburbs to actually living in their car when they lose their housing altogether. If we did recognize who lives in the suburbs and the the range of experiences people are having, the fact that there is great poverty in the suburbs and politicians who are trying to get the votes of these suburban voters, how do you think that would change the kind of campaign promises they would make? I think that politicians would begin to speak about things like acute housing insecurity, begin to speak about food insecurity, to talk about the immense chasm between the extremely rich and the extremely poor, which is a chasm that breaks down not along the lines of a city versus a suburban area, but within the suburb itself. And I think that that kind of division is one that In Georgia, for instance, political leaders are being forced to reckon with as suburban voters reveal themselves to be much more heterogeneous and indeed struggling than has been supposed. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you so much. So 
So, if the suburbs are far more diverse than the stereotypes suggest, what does that mean for politics? After a short break, we'll talk about the mistakes Democrats and Republicans are making in their pursuit of the suburban vote. We're joined now by Lily Geismer, an associate professor of history at Claremont McKenna College and the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. Lily, thank you for making time today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, It has been a little odd as a longtime observer of political campaigns to watch President Trump make explicit the fact that he is making a political appeal to suburban women. Well, I think the fascinating thing, as you pointed out, is that he's doing explicitly what politicians have been doing for decades more implicitly. So suburban women have been seen as this kind of um, crucial voting block going back at least to Bill Clinton's 1996 campaign where he made sort of appeals to soccer moms. They're not a monolithic voting block. And so there's this question of what does it mean to be a suburban housewife? Does that even exist as a category anymore? And who exactly is Trump speaking to? And I think so often what happens with politicians and sort of in the larger kind of culture is to use suburban as a stand-in for white, middle-class, affluent person when the reality of the suburbs is far more complicated. This concept of the suburbs as representing that sort of person, is it's not limited to Donald Trump and the Republican Party, right? Do Democrats engage in that same sort of idea of a monolithic suburbs at all? Absolutely. And they, they have for a very long time. But winning over suburban voters and this idea of a particular kind of white suburban voter has been really central to the Democratic Party's platform. In my research, I look at it going back to the 1960s. But I think you've seen it a lot, particularly in the last four years. And there was this idea, both in Hillary Clinton's campaign and then more recently, this idea that like our voters are the Panera Bread voters. <laughs> what is the idea about these mythical suburban voters? Like, what are they supposed to want I guess going back, when people think of the suburbs, they think of kind of like leave it to beaver, run living in single family homes and white picket fences. And I think the way that politicians use it today is a sort of updated version of that. A heterosexual couple who lives in a single family home is very nervous about questions of crime. And also probably, and I think this is how Trump reviews it, is that it's live in a racially segregated neighborhood and are very nervous about it becoming racially integrated. That's probably the most, like, stereotypical version. What's interesting about Trump's tweets to me is that they feel very out of date in that they seem very much based on a sort of, you say leave it to Beaver, I think of sort of 1968 idea of the suburbs as being a haven from the city, a place of white flight and a place of wealth uh, having abandoned the cities. And I don't think that reflects the reality of what the suburbs are today. There are a lot of liberals in the suburbs, but you write about how there are a particular kind of liberals who have a lot of influence in the suburbs, right? Traditionally, the suburbs are automatically conservative, you know, vote overwhelmingly Republican, or sort of hold more conservative values. And one of the things that I've looked at my research is this kind of outpouring of suburban liberal voters and residents who've been there for a very long time. And actually, The Democratic Party also understood that these people were sort of crucial to its ability to be politically successful. But one of the questions is kind of what defines suburban liberal politics. And these also tend to be people who care about things like their kids' education. And then they're also deeply worried about things like property values and other kinds of things that sort of typically characterized suburban politics. And so on things like civil rights, 
or in the 1960s, like sort of opposing the Vietnam War, they were very liberal. But then when you get closer and closer to someone's pocketbook, are much less willing to kind of go along with more traditionally progressive politics. And I think that that is actually a, a set of dynamics that has very much played out from the 1960s into the present day. And that that really makes up a lot of the base of the Democratic Party at this point, right? That's sort of who they're banking on right now, isn't it? Yeah. And so my research has looked at this longstanding shift within the Democratic Party's base um, away from kind of the Northern Union labor halls and kind of white working class union members into the kind of post-industrial suburbs. And that that really has become the kind of steady base of the Democratic Party. They tend to be people who vote in large numbers, also give campaign donations. And that's sort of who, in many ways, Democratic Party politics and in a lot of ways policies are increasingly catered towards as it's kind of left a more solidly working class base. Do you think there's a kind of threat there that they might move over to the Republican Party? Because this is sort of the idea in the 1960s that the remaking of the Republican Party kind of like emerged out of the suburbs and that you have people who could have otherwise been Democrats sort of like moving right. And that that imposes a pressure on the Democratic Party or gives it a kind of permission to move right on certain issues that actually a larger number of its people in the space may not want to move right on. And the kinds of affluent suburban liberals I've looked at tend to be kind of somewhat socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And a lot of people who have those politics actually end up voting Republican at the state level. So Massachusetts, the state that I wrote about and where I'm from, has a tradition of having moderate Republican governors. And so interestingly, Charlie Baker, who's governor right now, is the Mm -hmm. most popular governor in America. um, And he's a Republican in Massachusetts. Larry Hogan in, in Maryland has a similar dynamic. And so there's a question of, I mean, one of the things that's happened is that if those kinds of politicians regain control of the Republican Party, it would make these kind of suburban voters much, much more in play. But I think there's this threat that they could sort of go another way or they can't keep their support on various different issues. They can't take them for granted. Yes, absolutely. So you can't take them for granted and that they're vocal and that that's fundamentally important. And I think that goes on in so many different issues that sort of define the Democratic Party. You know, that's the reason we can't say we're going to defund police or that's the reason we say we're not going to support universal health care because that's something that white suburbanites won't go along with us on. I mean, Democrats, particularly in the leadership, sometimes Democrats are fairly explicit about this. I'm thinking of Chuck Schumer and his imaginary family, the Baileys. Uh, do you know about the Baileys? <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, oh, you, you don't know about the Baileys? Oh, I no, love the Baileys. No, I don't know. I'm really curious. Tell me about the Baileys. Chuck Schumer, dating back to the 90s, I think they were. They used to be called the O'Malley's, and then he sort of like de-ethnicized them and made them the Baileys. A completely imaginary couple in Nassau County in Long Island. And before he decides anything politically, he thinks, what does this imaginary, fairly <laughs> well-off, at this point, retirement age couple, what would they think about what I'm about to decide? That makes a huge amount of sense. <laughs> <laughs> that idea is who a lot of the Democrats think about as who their base is. I mean, and that goes along with, I mean, I was thinking of the Chuck Schumer comment that like, for every white working class person we're going to lose in Pennsylvania, like we'll pick up some in the Republican leaning suburbs. So there's a very much a calculation there that we have to win over the Baileys and then they're slightly sort of moderate to conservative neighbors. And that's the pathway to electoral success. And then sort of everyone else who's maybe more urban and working class will just either have to come along or not, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the questions is right now, you know, it does seem in the last several years that that's a really, really unstable coalition. Why do these mythical, or in the case of the Baileys, actually imaginary voters have so much sway over politicians? 
Because population-wise, they're not enough to win elections, right? The liberal suburbanites you're talking about are a large number of people, but not like the whole game, right? No, they're a very small percentage of the larger population of the United States. Um, They tend to vote in overwhelming numbers, and they tend to be really vocal. This is going to sound really glib, but I don't know who the New York Times thinks of, but they have their own version of the Baileys, who is a version of this kind of liberal suburbanite. And that's also driving some of the kind of ideas of who things are sort of catered towards. They're not the huge wealthy campaign donors, but they do give to campaigns as well. And so they just they hold a lot of sort of cultural capital outsized to their place within the larger population. So we have the Republicans on the one hand making a play for a vision of the suburbs that seems trapped in 1968. The Democrats perhaps going for a vision of the suburbs that comes from Bill Clinton's 1990s. At some point, are they going to be caught off guard by what the suburbs actually are today? Or are they going to just continue to sort of seek the suburbs they wish to see? I'll say two things about this. One is someone like Stacey Abrams' campaign in Georgia addressed the fact that there's a huge amount of African-American suburban population in metropolitan Atlanta. And that was part of the strategy that appealing to those kinds of voters could also appeal to white suburban voters too. And finding kind of more broad-based coalitions that define the kind of diversity of the suburbs. I think there's this other thing that happened. There's a lot of attention in 2018 to the fact that Orange County went Democratic for the first time in a generation. And I always say that a lot of the kind of like shock of that was people who had not been to Orange County since Barry Goldwater won the county in 1964. It's changed dramatically and it's hugely diverse. And that contributed in a lot of ways to those kinds of successes. So I think there are candidates and members of the Democratic Party who are acknowledging and recognizing that. I mean, even AOC's district has a sort of suburban element that that is quite diverse. And I think that those are the kinds of places that as that more of that happens, the party hopefully will respond. So you don't, uh, conversely, you do not think that Donald Trump tweeting that Joe Biden will send Antifa to the suburbs, you don't think that's going to win it for him? You don't think that's a winning message? (laughs) Maybe I'll be proven wrong on that one. But I mean, my sense of it is the kinds of suburban voters who are leaning against Trump, my sense is that those will only push them further away. I mean, that it's this kind of really sort of racially explicit rhetoric that doesn't appeal to kind of a moderate suburban voter. I think a lot of sort of white moderate suburban voters have been horrified about the family separation and various different other things. So I think that that's not necessarily the the best strategy for Trump to follow if he wants to win over suburban voters. And you brought up Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts. Those are Republicans these people want to vote for. And it it seems to me Donald Trump has radicalized these voters against a Republican Party they might otherwise feel some urge to support just purely for pocketbook reasons. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that those kinds of Republicans like Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker have been really alienated from the party, too. But it's possible to take them back. And I think on these kinds of pocketbook grounds, there is the possibility. And it'll be really fascinating to see what happens sort of going forward, particularly if the Democratic Party does increasingly tack left um, on economic issues, what that will mean for some of this kind of voting bloc. So in the run-up to the 2018 midterms, you and Matthew Lasseter wrote an op-ed saying that it's not worth it for Democrats to try and turn these affluent suburbs blue. What are you thinking going into the 2020 election? So one thing I should just clarify that when that piece came out, people interpreted it to say that we were arguing like 
Democrats should do everything they can not to win the suburbs. And that's not the idea. (laughs) They shouldn't actively try not to win the suburban communities. But that was, I think, how Twitter interpreted it. It's more to think about the kinds of policy costs of making that the kind of centerpiece of a political strategy. And I think the same thing. I mean, I think that there are real policy consequences when that's the kind of ideal voter that you're trying to win over of kind of what issues get addressed. One of the things that I found really fascinating is that there's been all this discussion of Trump's suburban comments, but Biden has not come back with a comprehensive plan of how he's going to address the problems of segregation at a metropolitan level. They're not saying that we're going to address a lot of these other kinds of questions. And so that's the sort of issue for me. Uh, Lily, thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I found it to be really interesting. Thank you. Just a small note about our last episode. On that show, one of our guests suggested that Congress could change the date of the presidential inauguration if it wanted to. That is true of Election Day, but changing the date of the inauguration would require a constitutional amendment. So if you've listened to that episode or you're about to listen to it, that point is incorrect, but we hope you enjoy the rest of the show. That was the politics of everything. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.